Father in heaven, I thank you that you are holy. Help us to honor you now as we listen to your word. Jesus, you are worthy. Help us to worship you as we submit to and believe in what you say. Holy Spirit, you deserve our submission and our surrender. Would you speak? Would you speak and change us? Show us something of our triune God, all glorious and worthy. Because of your grace through Christ, would you show us yourself, God, that we may see <clears throat> and delight and desire to live a life worthy, a life of worship for you. We pray this in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one steals it from me. I willingly give it. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. <clears throat> this charge, this commandment, this precept has been given to me, and I have received it from my Father. These are the words, of course, of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He is no thief. He is a giver. He gives himself for his sheep. And we are called to emulate him, <clears throat> to be like him. We are called to be Christ-like <clears throat> in every way. But we're not always, are we? We're called to be Christ-like stewards of what God has given us, but we don't always live like that. We're not always like Jesus. So often we're like the rich young ruler. You know, the one who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why are you talking about what's good? Only God is good. But I'll play your game. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Honor your father and mother. Don't defraud or lie to one another. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. The man says, that's all? Okay, good. I got that. I've been doing that since I was a child. Instead of saying, no, you haven't, Jesus says, oh, well, good. Good for you. Well, I forgot one thing. You got to sell all that you have and take the proceeds and give it to the poor, and then you can come and follow me, and you will have life. <clears throat> the man bowed his head and walked away in great sorrow because he had great possessions. Or rather, his great possessions had him, didn't they? He was making an idol out of his stuff. He was worshiping his money as if it were God. His money, then in his stuff, his possession, kept him from loving his neighbor as himself. It kept him from, from honoring God and loving him and worshiping him alone. It kept him from following Jesus and it kept him from life. We're like this rich young ruler, I'm afraid, too often when we 
read the Ten Commandments and we read specifically the Eighth Commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, which says, you shall not steal. And we think, oh, that's all? That's easy, I've got that. I've done this since that. I was a child. And it's hard for us to connect to this passage in the heart of it. This commandment seems to be one that does not easily land on our hearts. This challenge to connect it to ourselves, I think, comes from the fact, uh, and really only if we don't keep in front of us, three foundational truths about money and possessions. That they come from God, that they belong to God, and that they are not God. All of our money, all of our possessions, everything we have comes from God. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, because if you don't give it, we don't have it. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from you, Father. Yeah, it all comes from him, but it also belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. It belongs to him. And all of our money is not God. Our stuff is not God. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 that you cannot serve two masters. Because you'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and money. Making a distinction, you see, between the two. Our money is not our God. Then what is God? Who is God? Who is the God behind this eighth commandment of you shall not steal? Who is the God that uh, out of his own person, from his own character and ways and attributes, flow this commandment? He's Yahweh, the gracious and most generous one who is faithful to provide for his people. He is the God who is ultimate, the ultimate owner over all things. He is the one who has called all people to steward all that he has given them for his glory. This is the God behind the Eighth Commandment. He is most gracious, most generous, faithful to provide for his people. He ultimately owns all things, and he calls all people to steward everything that he gives them for his glory. To make it more personal, God himself is the one who has given you all your stuff. He is the generous giver of all that you have. And he is different from and greater than all that you have. And he is the ultimate owner of all that you have. But here now we see the challenge of connecting this passage, this commandment to our hearts and to our lives A little more clearly, just on a practical level, we go, well, how, is it my stuff or is it, is it God's? <clears throat> how should you view possessions and ownership and property rights? Look with me at Exodus 21, verses 33 through 34. <clears throat> We've been trying to incorporate chapters 21, 22, and 23 into the Ten Commandments as we walk through them to show you how they're just the applications of, the overflow of the commandments. There's much in these these chapters that expand on the Eighth Commandment. Here's one such verse, two verses here. Exodus 21, 33 and 34. When a man opens a pit, when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. Do you hear the word owner there? 
The owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, that's the owner of the ox or the donkey, and the dead beast shall be his, that it shall belong to him. So you see what's happening. A man owns land, and he digs a pit for some reason, and that's his pit, because he owns it. Somebody else owns an ox or a donkey, and it wanders over into his property, the other man's property, and it falls into the pit. Then the man then has to give his money that he owns to the other man, and so now he gives the dead ox or donkey to him, and the money is now his, the land is still his. You see, there is possession, there is ownership. <clears throat> I point this out because I think it's important for at least two reasons, that there is real, such thing as real ownership of our personal property, real possession. It is because at least there is no such thing as stealing if no one owns anything. It just doesn't make any sense. The Eighth Commandment assumes that people own stuff. If I take something that is yours, but it's not really yours, and it's not really taking from you, that something that is yours, it's not stealing. And maybe more importantly, <clears throat> personal ownership and possession must be affirmed because without it, there is no such thing as giving. You cannot give something to somebody that you do not have. And then you're not giving it to them to be theirs if they can't own it because there's no ownership. Do you see? You add to this that there is a real connection, I think, when we own something. There's a connection to us, ourselves. Look at Exodus 22 with me, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, we can maybe understand if you take an ox and you kill it to eat it or you sell it to make money, then you have to repay that person the ox or the sheep. But why five times or four times as much? Well, maybe it's for retribution and to deter other people from stealing, but I don't think that's the primary aim here, or reason, I should say. I think that there is an understanding that the ox and the sheep of a farmer is more to them than just a piece of property. It's part of their livelihood. It's part of their life. And there's certain benefits they cannot get from it when you take it. And so there is a real connection of your stuff to you. You might say your stuff is, in some sense, an extension of you. And I think the implications of this are many. If you really own something and, and your possessions is an, is, is an extension of your person, the implication, number one, is that stealing or damaging someone else's stuff is a violation not just of their stuff, but of them. If you've ever had anything stolen from you, you know this. You don't just feel like, oh, man, somebody took something. Someone took something from me. It's a violation of the person. Second implication of ownership that has this extension of the person who owns it is that what you do with your stuff reflects on you. That is, it reflects who you are, what you value, what you desire. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a connection with your treasure and your heart, with who you are. Conversely, what you do with other people's stuff reflects on how you view and treat them. You don't just get to say, no, I just don't think of you know, uh, ownership and personal possession that way. You are actually saying how you view them, how you are treating them with their stuff. It's an extension of them. Helping someone with their property, you see, then is a way of actually loving the person. And when you give your stuff your money that you own, that you are in possession of, since it's an extension of yourself, when you give your stuff away, you're giving something of yourself away. That's how it should be. And so, yes, it's true and important that we should see our stuff as our stuff. We are owners. 
We possess things, and it's an extension of who we are. And yet, God is the ultimate owner of all things. God is the ultimate owner of your things. Look with me in 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12 King David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For, listen, all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. All of it. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, over all kings and kingdoms over all nations, over all people, over all individuals, over all circumstances and happenings, over all possessions. He is exalted over it and, and, and rules over it. It comes from him and he owns it. We say that seems to be a contradiction. How can I own something and God owns something? And what does that even mean? Is that confusing? I don't think it's quite as confusing as I'm trying to make it out to be. We understand that there are levels of ownership Think of a child receiving a toy from an adult. If that child is super ungrateful for it, maybe really selfish with it and not sharing or is violent and hits somebody with it, what do we do? We take it back. Why? Because they own it. But because we're the adult in charge over them, we have a more ultimate ownership of it. Kids, listen. Your stuff is your stuff. It's true. Your clothes, your toys, your books, your things are yours. But because you live in your parents' house, under their authority, under their care and charge, God has given them a more ultimate authority and ownership of your things. Parents, that means that your job is primarily not to teach your kids about ownership, but about stewardship. And stewardship <clears throat> does not mean responsibility. I hear that all the time. Well, we got to be a good steward, so I should take care of my stuff and be responsible with it. That's not what a steward is. A steward is not one who is responsible with his stuff. A steward is one who is responsible with somebody else's stuff. A steward is not an owner, you see. He's a manager. He doesn't own the store. He manages the store in, on behalf of the owner. And so, therefore, he must use it and care for it as the owner would have him. Do you see the connection now? God is the ultimate owner of all of our things, and he has called us to be Christ-like stewards of what he has given us, and so we are called to take care of what he has given us, and we, we are called to use what he has given us as he pleases, in ways that honor him. How might this change you? If, if you really, not just grasped it, understood it, but I mean, if you gladly embraced this reality that God is the ultimate owner of everything you have and that you have the privilege of being a Christ-like steward of all of God's stuff. And you turn on your TV, you get into your car, you're locking up your house at night, you're receiving your paycheck, you're looking at your bank account and looking at your budget what if you stopped and say, this isn't first and foremost and ultimately mine? Family, it's not ours. It's his. That might revolutionize. If that was in the forefront of our minds, how we viewed and how we used and spent and saved and gave. <clears throat> I think one thing's for sure. If we embrace this reality that God is the ultimate owner of all things, that we are stewards of, of what he has given us, I, I think we would 
not break the Eighth Commandment and steal from others. Because at least we'd be saying, God owns all of my stuff and God owns all of your stuff, so I'm not going to take from you because in a sense I would be taking from God. You won't do that. And if you, if you gladly embrace the call to be a Christ-like steward and to see God as the ultimate owner of all things, I think that we will be more loving of others and of God, which after all is <clears throat> the very basis of all the commandments. Or as Jesus says, Matthew 22, all the law and the prophets depend upon these two realities, that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we are Christ-like stewards, <clears throat> then we will, we will obey the eighth commandment to not steal. We will obey the principle behind this precept. The great idea that, is that it's the, the precept is based on and what is the principle of the Eighth Commandment? It is simply that we should humbly acknowledge God's ultimate ownership of all things and gladly, <clears throat> and gladly reflect God's generous character to all people. That we will humbly acknowledge God's ultimate ownership of all things and gladly reflect God's generous character to all people. That is what we should understand when we read Exodus 20, verse 15, You shall not steal. Well, what are the implications for this, for us? I think, um, I think we, if we will see it this way, this principle, then we will seek to obey both the positive and the negative aspects of the Eighth Commandment. That is, there are two main simple ways to break the Eighth Commandment. One is to take what is not yours. One is to not give what you should give. But put it more simply, if you want to obey the Eighth Commandment, don't take. Don't take from others what God has not given to you. And number two, don't keep from others what God wants you to give to them. Don't take from others what God has not given to you and don't keep from others what God wants you to give to them. <clears throat> See, when you don't give to others, when you should, and there are times when we should, not just we're free to, but we are obligated to, when we don't give to others when we should, you see, you're not just being selfish, you're stealing. Since we are stewards of all that God gives us. And since the Lord not only intends to give things to us, but to give things through us to others, it is theft when we don't. Imagine you go to Bush Stadium, and you are just eager to try to find out what a really overbaked $337 hot dog tastes like. And you say, hey, hey, can I get a hot dog? So the, you're in the middle, and there's a couple of people in, in between you and the, the vendor. And so he starts passing the hot dog down, and you pass over the money. And the guy in the middle, he grabs the hot dog and the money, looks at him, pockets the money, and eats the hot dog. So you go, hey, foul, what's up? The, you're stealing from both me and him. And he goes, no, you guys gave it to me. He said, and you say, no, 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 no. He gave you the hot dog only so that you would give it to me. I gave you the money only so that you would give it to him. And God says, exactly. You see, there are some things that God wants to give to you so that you will enjoy him by enjoying the gifts that he gives you. But there are other things that God gives to you so that you will enjoy him by giving it to others that you will get to experience something of his generosity through you to others. 
After all, Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe him? And yes, the Lord, the Lord who is the ultimate owner of all things and the one who calls us to be Christ-like stewards of all that he gives us. He calls us to reflect his generous character to those around us. He calls us to give. Look at Exodus 23. Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. This is God's grace. He's given this to them to enjoy. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Do you notice the word your? It is your land. It is your vineyard. It is your olive orchard. What right does God have to tell you what to do with it? Because ultimately, it's his. And he says, it's not just that I'm trying to be nice to you for six years and then, and then mean to you for a year. He says, it's a different kind of blessing. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Listen to Passage from the New Testament in Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. 1 Timothy 6, <clears throat> verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, don't stumble over that. If you think, well, that doesn't apply to me, consider, consider yourself comparatively to the world as a whole. And everyone in this room is rich. Do you hear what he says? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Here again we see there is the difference between riches and God. You can set your hopes on, you can worship both, but you shouldn't. Or one or the other, rather. But put it on God. Because your money is not God. He is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Money and gifts come from God. Isn't he gracious? Generous. He provides us richly with everything to enjoy. But then verse 18. Those who receive from God, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. To be rich in good works so that you may do good, be generous and ready to share with others. So ready, so eager to give. We read in Exodus 23, this time, verses 4 and 5, that we should even give to our enemies. Exodus 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you, he hates you, and you see him, that donkey lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him, that is, with your enemy, with the one who hates you. You know that, that there is a real connection of one's possessions to one person, and this person is your enemy, and he hates you, so you don't really want to help him out. And God says you should be ready and eager to share and to give and to help and to do good works even to your enemies. We are stewards. We are stewards of what God has given us. And so we should seek to honor him with the possessions that he has given us. Because this is often why the Lord blesses you with what you have. 2 Corinthians 9.11 says, You will be enriched in every way by God. Why? He says, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the glory of God and the good of others, God has blessed you. And this, in part, is also why we should work and work hard. Ephesians 4.28 
Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. That's the eighth commandment, right? Do not steal. But, he says, rather, here's the positive aspect of the eighth commandment, rather let him labor, let him work hard, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So work and work hard. So you can provide for yourself? Yes. So you can provide for your family? Yes. But also so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. That's why we should work. What does, this look like? what does this look like practically in everyday life? If we are to humbly acknowledge God's ultimate ownership of all things and gladly reflect God's generous character to all people, then I think we will not steal by taking and we will not steal by keeping. We will not steal by taking such that we will be honest and we will pay our taxes. We will not take things from work. Well, everybody does it. We will not plagiarize from someone else. We will not commit digital piracy, taking things that we do not have authorized um, allowance to take. We will not fail to work hard and for all the hours that we're getting paid for. Do You see, when you're surfing the internet and checking social media and being, spending hours on YouTube when you're getting paid for it, that's stealing. And if we, if we were really humbly acknowledge God's ultimate ownership of all things, and seek to gladly reflect God's generous character to all people, then we will not steal by taking from others what God has not given to us, but we will also not steal by keeping from others what God wants us to give to them. And so we will be faithful in giving to the church. I read some statistics this past week. In America at large, only about 5% of people who are regular attendees of a local church give 10% or more. And nearly 40% give nothing. Now, I don't know how much you give. I don't even know if you give. I don't have that information. But I am thankful that at Piney Ridge Church, even just especially looking over this last year, it was so hard in so many ways. God has provided for this church and abundantly more through the generosity of you. I'm thankful for that. But I'm not naive enough to think that there are some here who aren't giving at all. And I say this because, not because, oh, oh, we didn't have enough last year. No, we had abundance and then some. It's not about that. It's not about God needing you to give because he's hurting without it. It's about God owning your money, your stuff, and about him being worthy of being worshipped by you giving it. And it's about your joy and surrendering to him and trusting him and worshipping in it. You might say, I have nothing to actually give. I don't believe that. You might not have much. You might be in debt, but you can be faithful to give something, even if it's small, even if it's just a token, God says, with the right heart, it pleases me. And do you, is your heart's desire to give and to give more? I think the way it should be is that our desire to give to the church and to others in need will, should always outmatch our ability to give. I think that's what honors God that you wish you had more that you could bless more people with and that you pray for it. God, would you increase my faith? Would you increase my desire? Would you increase my actual income, my money, so that I can bless others? I think that should be our prayer. And I think if we are going to not steal by keeping from others what God wants us to give to them, then we will save our money and we will spend wisely. If you're being so foolish as to Spend everything you have and then some all the time. 
Never working to get out of debt, never working to save more for the future, never working to, to spend more wisely, then you will never be able to give more than you already do. You should be seeking to save and spend so as to be able to bless others. Now, I know that there are just many different thoughts and feelings about these stimulus checks from the government. But the fact is, if you receive one, you are then a steward. There's no way around that. You are a steward of what God has then given you. And I will say, as a way, by way of confession, that my f- first thought with both, uh, both of the first two stimulus checks was not, who else needs this more than I? I didn't think that way. I didn't even ask it. I didn't even ask God, God, what, how can I glorify you through this? Should I take some of it and give it to the church or give it to somebody else who needs it? But I think that should be our first thought. Don't you? God, this is yours. Does someone else need this? Have you given this to me so that I can bless somebody else? No, no, not every financial problem is your problem. There are too many to count. There are not, not every financial issue and problem is one that you have the ability to cover or even is your responsibility to help with, but some are. Some are. We say, well, who should I give what and how much and when? I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that for you. These are hard questions with, not, with really no easy answers. But I think that's kind of the point. That what we should be doing is wrestling with it. On our knees saying, God, this is not mine. Not ultimately, it's yours. How should I use it? What would be most reflective of your generosity and most highlighting the fact that you own all of this and I want to spend it as a Christ-like steward for your glory? Wrestle with it in prayer. Wrestle with it as you read this book. Wrestle with it by talking to other people and saying, what should I do? That's what the church is supposed to be about. I love 1 Chronicles 29, verse 17. Right after what we just read, David is talking about they're trying to gather money to build the temple of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 29, 17, he says, I know, my God, that you test the heart. That's what God's doing when he gives you something. You test the heart and you, have, you take pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. That is normally not our default response. At least not for all of us. I know not for me. And so we have to wrestle for that, fight for it. And we have to fight together so that we give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. There's a heart in that place where we're giving, but we're not giving reluctantly. Where we're giving, we're not giving with begrudging attitude or with manipulation, or with pride. Or we're giving with faith and a joyful sacrifice as worship. If you genuinely care about other people and by extension caring about their stuff and their livelihood, this is a way to honor the Lord. After all, loving our neighbors as ourselves is a way of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Caring about other people and their stuff is a way of caring about the glory of God. Listen to Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And I think the word him there is talking about the maker because this is, this is proverbial parallelism where you see the first and the second line are just mirroring each other in different ways. You can either oppress the poor or you can be generous to the poor. Either way, you, on the one side... 
you insult to his maker or you honor his maker. God says, when you give this way, you are doing it to honor me. It should be anyway. Whereas Jesus says, whatever you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. There's a connection between us and our stuff. There's a connection between us and our stuff and other people. And us and our stuff and other people's stuff and God. Oh, there is a connection. We must see it. And it centers on our hearts and the worship of God. Giving to others should be for the worship of God. We should be giving to others by reflecting, seeking to worship God by reflecting His generous character. We should be giving to others in a way to worship Him by highlighting highlighting that He is the ultimate owner of all things. And we should be giving to others as a way of worshiping God by trusting Him. I know that much of the reason why we don't give is because we're afraid. We're not trusting God. We're putting our hopes and riches in not in God. And I'm going to talk about in a couple of weeks in the Tenth Commandment more about this idea of trusting God with all that we have and all that He has. At the very least, we should be seeing that we can worship God when we give by reflecting His generosity and highlighting His ownership. Because stealing, either by taking or keeping, does the exact opposite. Whenever you steal from someone... You disrespect them. But more importantly, whenever you steal from someone, either by taking or by keeping, you disrespect God, the God who made you to reflect his generosity and his kindness. You disrespect God who made them in his image. You disrespect God who blesses you with all that you have to be a steward of all that he's given. And you disrespect God when you steal by taking or by keeping. You disrespect him who is the ultimate owner of all things. See, not stealing, not keeping, not taking, when you actually give, it should be for God's glory. Mark Rober is an uh, American engineer, inventor, and YouTuber. He created, uh, you might have heard of the glitter bomb. Those people have the porch pirates who come and take stuff off their front porch, usually around Christmas time. And Mark thought, I, I got an idea, I'll get him back. And so he created this thing that looked like a really good gift. And when they open it up, it just sprays glitter all over them and sprays them with some kind of skunk spray. It's actually quite hilarious and ingenious how he did it. This past December, he uh, did his newest one, and it was out on this roadside where there's kind of a busy intersection, and there's a communal uh, mailbox, you know, with all the keys. You can open up your own mailbox. There's like 20 of them. And he put it right at the bottom in the base on the ground. But there's a bunch of people all around, all, all over. And so it wasn't surprising that 3% of the people who walked by stole the package. Maybe it was surprising that only 3% took it. And maybe more surprising, that was 90% of the people just walked on past it. But most surprising was that 7% of the people, that's 100%, right? Yeah. 7% of the people actually took the package, looked, picked it up, found the address and delivered it, or found the number and called them and said, hey, your package is out here. I don't want it to be stolen. They went from not taking to seeing how they could protect and care for somebody else's stuff and their care for them. But the question we must ask is Why? Not why did the 3% take it, that's fairly obvious. But why did the other 90% not take it? And why did the other 7% protect it and give it? This is no small or insignificant question. We've been asking this all throughout the Ten Commandments. Because it doesn't, it's God says, I'm not just concerned with what you do, but how and why you do it. The manner of our heart and the motivation behind our action matters to God. Because if you simply don't take from others because you don't want to live in anarchy and chaos, well, I guess that's good, but it's not worship of God. 
And if you give generously to other people because well, it makes you feel good, because it makes you look good in front of others, it's not bad to give to others, but it's not worship of God. It's not really obeying the Eighth Commandment because you're not really reflecting the generous character of God. You must obey the Eighth Commandment. And you must obey all the commandments with the First Commandment in view. How can I not steal? How can I reflect God's generosity in such a way that I show that I have no other God before me, that I worship Him and Him alone? God is honored when we accurately reflect His character of genuine grace and kindness and compassion and generosity. Remember the principle of the Eighth Commandment of you shall not steal. It means that we should humbly acknowledge that God is the ultimate owner of all things and we should seek to gladly reflect that God is the generous giver to all people. And what's Paul's way of motivating this? What's Paul's way of motivating for us to be Christ-like stewards? We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 trying to motivate them to give generously and with joy, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ, the one who was in all glory, in all peace, in all happiness, he came to live a life of service and suffering and a death on the cross, being most impoverished, by receiving the wrath of God, even having God turn his back on him, he was impoverished so that we, rebellious, unworthy sinners, might become eternally rich. I started this message reading from John 10, where Jesus contrasts himself with Satan and these other false teachers who were like thieves. And he says, I, I'm not a robber. No, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. And I started with that not to show you that Jesus is the greatest example of being a giver, which is true, but rather to show you that Jesus is the greatest gift. What did he give? I laid down my life for the sheep. He gave himself for the sheep. And there are two main reasons why he gave his, his life, gave for the sheep. Number one is for a ransom. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many, so that he would be punished, that he would be crucified in the place of sinners like us. And you know we need that. We need this because... As Al Mohler says, when we read the Eighth Commandment, we are reading it as thieves. We are reading it as people whose primary goal is not that, well, I want to reflect God's generous character. We're often just reflecting our selfish one. And it's not that uh, we think God is the ultimate owner of all things, but we actually act like and feel like we are the ultimate owners. What's mine is mine. What's yours, if I can get it, is also mine. Whatever else I can get, well, that's mine. That's not how Jesus lived. That's not being a Christ-like steward. And we know that. And so we need one who would come and die in our place to give himself for us, to rescue us, deliver us from 
hell. And praise be to God that while there were two thieves who were crucified next to Jesus, one of those thieves, one of those people who had our thieving, selfish heart, said to Jesus in humility and in faith and repentance, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, would you remember me? I don't deserve it, but by grace, would you remember me? And Jesus says, I will remember you with forgiveness. I will remember you with peace and acceptance and life. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The thief who spent his life taking, Jesus says, I give myself for you and I give you paradise. Such is the grace of our Savior. So this morning, if you are not yet trusting in Christ, to be the one who gave himself for you. If you're not trusting in his life given up for the sheep and that you need that, this communion meal that we're about to partake of together as a church is not yet for you. When others take it, I urge you to bow your head, to close your eyes, maybe even get on your knees and beg God to open your eyes to see that you are indeed a great sinner and he is a greater savior. Trust his generous heart for you. And then come and talk to me, one of the other pastors, or just another Christian around you. Put it on a connection card, maybe, that you want somebody to talk with you. Or you can email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org, and we would love to share with you more. And this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus as the giving, generous Savior, then let me remind you of the second reason why Jesus gave himself. The first, you see, was to give his life as a ransom for many. The second is, as the Apostle Paul says in Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see, beloved? Jesus died. He gave his life so that you would be a giver. He died that you would be zealous for good works, that you would be eager to bless others and give to be a Christ-like steward, acknowledging God's ownership of all things and seeking to gladly reflect God's generous character, most supremely seen through Christ. So this morning, if that's you and you've had your faith in Christ affirmed by other Christians in baptism, I invite you to take your communion cup and take the wafer that represents the body of Jesus, broken for sinners like us. And take it with faith that he gave himself to be your ransom, your substitute, and your savior. In the same way, take the juice that represents the blood of Jesus Christ, willingly and eagerly given over for sinners like us, not only to cleanse us, but also to change us, that we would be more zealous like him for good works. Take it with faith in all that he has done and doing.